Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. Suffice it to say that we have not reached the end of history, the end of conflict, or even the end of war. The end of the Cold War was but the beginning of a new chapter in U.S. global policy, a chapter that realigned our relationship with Russia, the Middle East, and today with China. It began an era of globalization in which economics and the market as well as military and defense strategy, reshape the world. A world that is awash in money and commerce, a place where the nasty human habit of fighting the next war with the lessons and tools of the old one will not and should not work. So as the U.S. looks at China, it must first decide whether it's an enemy or just our biggest competitor on the global stage. As our concerns about China and Taiwan mount, as China's influence in the Asian region grows, As the economic ties to China by some of our largest corporations also grows, we must ask how that relationship should play out. What's best for U.S. interests, global interests, corporate interests, and what happens if none of these interests are the same? This is the world that my guest Elbridge Colby examines in his clarifying new book, The Strategy of Denial. Elbridge Colby is a co-founder and principal of the Marathon Institute. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy and Force Development from 2017 through 2018, during which he led the development of the 2018 National Defense Strategy. It is my pleasure to welcome Elbridge Colby here to the Who, What, Why podcast to talk about the strategy of denial, American defense in an age of great power conflict. Elbridge, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. First of all, should we be thinking about China today as an enemy or as a competitor? Well, I think that uh, sort of depends. I mean, I think it's a bit of both, actually. I would, I, I kind of prefer the term rival. I mean, I mm-hmm. think there are going to be areas of, of cooperation, but certainly when we're thinking about it uh, in, in the last analysis, I think there are elements in which it will be an enemy, certainly from the military planning point of view. And precisely in treating it in those ways as an enemy, we'll be more likely to, to keep it as a competitor by deterring war, which would make it a full-scale enemy. Talk about that. It, it... Break that down a little bit in terms of how looking at it more as an enemy can make it more of a competitor. Sure. Well, I mean, I think the old the old saw, the old truism is, you know, if you want peace, prepare for war. Um, And I think people kind of maybe nod their heads at that, but don't sort of internalize it. And I think the the point here is China is an enormously powerful country. It's increasingly ambitious and assertive. In some sense, that's human nature as, as an individual, let alone a country, becomes more powerful. Its ambitions tend to expand. And that's clearly happened with China and continuing to happen. And so, you know, it's looking out of the world and it's seeing what's feasible. You know, if it sees an easy road to regional domination and a globally preeminent position, it's more likely to pursue it. If it sees a sort of an invincible counterforce that it that it faces, it'll be more likely to uh, stay within its bounds, if you will. And so, in order to keep it to the latter course, the one where it, it you know respects other countries' you know rights and prerogatives, we have to be prepared to fight it. And I think that that clarity is what I tried to you know, as you kindly said, that 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 sort of detailed assessment of how a, a China did, did pers- take those ambitions and use military force to pursue them, how we could defeat that effort. We need to think that through very, very clearly and carefully. And if China sees that, it's more likely to see, you know, rationally, that that's not going to work for it. And it's more likely to pursue an alternative approach. And that, that's what we want. We want it to be a competitor. 
I think a lot of people are saying, oh, China's going to be a political and economic and technological competitor, but not a military competitor. But that's actually confusing what we want to be the result with what will necessarily happen. I mean, China is clearly investing an enormous amount in its military, specifically to project power well beyond its shores. And it's shown the willingness to, to use its power. I mean, you know, it's, it's waging economic warfare, if you will, coercion against Australia right now. And it's used military force against India uh, last year. And it's specifically reserved the right to use military force against Taiwan. So I think the, the best way to deal with a country like this is to show it that, that, that violence and aggression is not going to pay. And to what extent do we need to think about, as, as you talk about, the grand strategy for dealing with China? Well, I think it, that actually is important. There's kind of a cottage industry of people who say that the grand strategy is not important or not feasible, and I, I think that's wrong. It's, it's hard. It's hard to develop, and it's even harder to implement effectively. But we've done this before, say, in the Cold War. We more or less had a strategy, of, grand strategy of containment. Um, I don't think we had a very clear grand strategy after the, Cold, after the end of the Cold War because we were pursuing far too ambitious kind of transformational agenda in the world that was not kind of closely connected to Americans' real interests. But we could afford to do that because we were so much more powerful than any other country that our, our, our surfeit, our superabundance of power buffered us from the consequences of our overambition. Um, but we don't live in that world anymore. We now live in a world of great power, comp- great powers. And, you know, by far the two most significant are the United States itself and China. And so we don't have that superabundance of power to spend on any potential threat or interest we might care to pursue. We have to actually make choices. And in this kind of condition of what economists call scarcity, you ha- it's better to make decisions based on some you know rational framework that's connected to reality and to our interests. I mean, same in a business environment. You know, if you're a, a near monopoly business, maybe you can make bad decisions without too much consequence. But you know, if you're looking at a competitive market, you've got to make, you've got to make sure your investments are in the right area and that you focus on the the main threats to your your market share and so forth. And it's similar here. And so that's what I'm trying to do is basically provide a framework. And that framework basically says that the ultimate interest really here, you know, the ultimate interest of the American people is, you know, our, our freedom, our security and our prosperity. And the primary threat to that out there is another state dominating one of the major market areas of the world. And by far the most serious and consequential uh, potential for that is China, which is, you know, roughly a fifth of global GDP, dominating Asia, which is about half of global GDP. And that's a very real prospect, and every other challenge in the international system pales in comparison to it. To what extent is China's dominance in Asia, even hegemonic dominance, a threat to U.S. interests? Well, this is a great question and one that I think is, is ill-understood. I think there's an aborning um, uh, consensus, might be too strong, but near consensus that China is a very serious threat and that we need to counteract it. But I think it's pretty thin, especially given how costly and risky confronting China will, will be, uh, unfortunately. I mean, so we really need to understand what we're, what we're about here. I think the threat is that um, if China dominates half or more of global GDP, it will set the future of international economic, uh, you know, the international economic map. So the world will essentially cluster economically around China. And that will, of course, lead to a serious diminution in American prosperity. I mean, the world-beating companies, the best uh, universities in the world, they will move to China. And that's that's not just a matter of happenstance. That's exactly what the Chinese are pursuing deliberately. So w- our prosperity will suffer. And 
and, and so will our freedoms. And I mean, here again, this is not speculative. Um, I mean, if you have a situation which you control roughly 50 or greater percent of global GDP, you know, you will have that economic leverage to impose your will on everybody else and certainly to constrain their freedoms. I mean, the Chinese, for instance, their demands on Australia right now, when they don't have a dominant position over Australia, are that Australia change its internal laws to suppress anti-Chinese speech. I don't mean in a, in a kind of ethnic way. I mean, like anti-PRC speech within Australia. I mean, a, a, a grave challenge to free speech in the Australian context. That's just a taste of the future. And I think we're so accustomed to, you know, the, the, the largest companies, the Wall Street being the center of global finance, the dollar being the reserve currency, Silicon Valley being the center of, of technology. That will not be the case if China dominates the future. And, and, and it, it, it's clearly seeking to supplant the United States in exactly those ways. And, you know, in a way, this is actually a very long-standing American goal. It's why we fought the Pacific War in World War II. In a sense, it's why we fought the Cold War in the Second World War, was to prevent a country from Germany from, and then Soviet Union from dominating Europe, which was then the world's largest market area. So this is something that American, I mean, even goes back into the 19th century and the black ships and so forth opening Japan. We need to make sure that we are able to trade and operate freely in the world's key markets. And, and this is what China uh, threatens us with, and it will have very, very immediate and concrete ramifications, again, not only for our prosperity, but for our freedoms, ultimately. Don't we currently have, though, the nuclear option with respect to China, with regards to dollar flow, part of the SWIFT system, all of the things that we could cut off from China in a moment that could literally paralyze the con- their country? Well, it would paralyze us, too. I'm, I actually think in, in an economic war between the United States and China, I think we very well might lose. I mean, who's more dependent on whom? A, I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of our goods that, we're, that we purchase are made in China. I mean, down to like face masks and, and other you know, PPE kind of stuff. But all the, a lot of the stuff we buy on Amazon, but even more, more you know, up the value chain now. And also, who's more... Uh, resolute and resilient in the context of a sort of a mutual blockade situation. It might be a metaphorical blockade, but I think it might be China. I don't know. I mean, if if we're fighting over Taiwan or Philippines or something like that, who's going to care more? Because those, those mutual economic uh, blockades will, you know, come down to who's, who's firmer uh, on the issues. I also think China's, you know, made enormous progress. They're not as vulnerable to us as they were 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And, and, you know, value chains and, and financial chains would, would likely adapt. I mean, the role of the dollar, the SWIFT system, presumably China and Russia and others over time are going to look for alternatives. There's already evidence of that. That might be difficult for them, but in the context of an economic war, they would probably go the extra mile. So I don't think – I think we're more in like a, a situation of mutual assured destruction economically. I'm not sure either of us would – who would win? But I don't think it's a, a trump card for us, for sure. How much do we really understand about what's going on in China? And I, I say it in the context of the Cold War experience, where so many decisions that we made, we now know with the benefit of hindsight, really were made without a really clear understanding of what was happening in the former Soviet Union. Well, I think we know a lot more about contemporary China than we knew about the USSR. I mean, we knew next to nothing about the USSR, certainly, uh, you know, in the, in the sort of the depths of the Cold War in the, in the 40s, 50s, uh, so forth. Um, you know, I think we know a pretty good amount about 
the Chinese market and the, and the facts on the ground. I mean, you can see it reported. Obviously, there are fewer reporters than there used to be. That, that might be changing. I'm skeptical how much we know about decision making in in Zhongnanhai and we're in, in, in the sort of headquarters of the, of the PRC government. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I think we have a sense, but I think this is a very, you know, at, at the end of the day, the Chinese Communist Party, which is the leadership structure of the state. I mean, it's a party state. You know, we might not take that Marxist Leninist aspect seriously, but I think Xi Jinping does. And they're they're obsessed with secrecy. Certainly all communist parties are obsessed with secrecy, but certainly the Chinese Communist Party and deception and so forth. So, you know, in, in my book, I try not, you know, I actually try to be somewhat agnostic on interpretations of Chinese decision making, um, because I, I, I think we're, we're likely to not have a great handle. And I, I tend to actually to be quite skeptical of people who speak with great confidence about how China is going to behave. I, I don't I, I just I don't know. And I think people who pretend to have certainty are, are probably exhibiting a, a, a way more confidence than is justified. So we need to build a strategy, though, that is resilient to a range of possible future leadership kind of decision making styles or, or patterns. And we were able to do that in the Cold War. I think you're right. I mean, I, I saw an article in, in uh, I think it was the New York Times that, that kind of offhandedly said that the CIA was the best intelligence agency in the world. And I think, you know, my, my sense is the KGB would probably have the upper hand and the intelligence struggle during the Cold War. But at the end of the day, we were able to develop a strategy uh, that didn't rely on perfectly understanding how things happened in Moscow or how decisions were being made. And I think we're going to need to do the same thing vis-a-vis China. And how do we do that in the context of this idea of what you call a defense perimeter? Well, I think the key here is if our goal is to avoid China dominating Asia and then imposing its will on us, essentially, um, we can't do it alone. We're not strong enough and it's too far away. So it kind of, you know, resolve tends to attenuate as you go farther away. So we're going to have to work with other countries, um, you know, other countries that are strong enough and that are also resolute enough to resist China's domination of the region. And, and of course, naturally, you know, most countries in Asia don't want to be dominated by anybody, whether it's China or someone else. And, you know, these are countries like Japan and India, Australia, Vietnam, Taiwan, et cetera, South Korea. We need to work together with those countries to have a coalition that is strong enough that it can stand up and resist China's uh, domineering uh, uh, behavior and, and, and demands. Um, the problem is that, uh, you know, China's aware of that. And so China has a strategy, probably, which is uh, to, to, to kind of break that coalition apart, to kind of collapse it, if you will, short circuit it. And so China's incentive is to avoid precipitating a major conflict with all of those countries together. Uh, for instance, like Hitler did in 1941, 1942, where you end up fighting the rest of the world, eventually you're going to lose. Rather, China's strategy is more to be kind of focused and, and pick it apart by um, – making an example of some of the weaker members that are, that are tied to that coalition, then basically cause a run on the bank is the metaphor I think of, you know, if, if you're in Japan uh, and you're saying, I, I, I don't want to be dominated by China, but I also don't want to be subject to China's ire, right? I don't want to be left alone before China. You're really going to be looking at American uh, credibility, Amer- how, how, how reliable are the Americans that they're going to stick around here and help us in, in extremists. And that's what the defense perimeter is about. The defense perimeter is a physical representation of our commitment uh, to defend states in Asia. And the key here is we need to have enough states that are strong and wealthy enough to you know, out, outmatch China and its confederates. 
but also states that we can reasonably defend. I mean, we don't want to get in a war in Asia, and we definitely don't want to get in a, in a costly war in Asia. Um, and, and to be kind of simplistic about it, you know, there's a reason people say if you want to get in a land war in Asia, you need to get your head, head examined. You know, the American military, the American people are more likely to do better and to be more resolute in wars that involve aerospace and maritime, high technology stuff, not putting our people into the meat grinder in, you know, uh, in trenches and stuff if we can possibly avoid it. And so our defense perimeter, it's not a coincidence that our defense perimeter basically runs along what's called the first island chain. It's all islands, with the exception of South Korea, which is a peninsula. Uh, and that's what I think we should try to hold if possible uh, and then work with countries like India that actually want to pull their own weight. I don't want an alliance commitment. And together we can stand up to to China. But it's critical to defend that defense perimeter because, you know, if Japan sees us back off in the context of a Taiwan scenario or let alone the Philippines sees us, uh, they're going to wonder, well, am I going to just be left exposed? You know, the Americans flap their gums. But at the end of the day, they're not reliable. And, and we need to really guard against that uh, phenomenon, because that, I think, would cause a run on the bank, and then we'd lose. Given American actions over the past several years, certainly culminating in the recent withdrawal from, from Afghanistan, given that, and, and given our strategic ambiguity with respect to Taiwan, why would they think anything else? Well, I actually think the withdrawal from the, the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan was the right one because what, our credibility, where our credibility matters, is in Asia. It doesn't matter in the Middle East. In fact, withdrawing from, I think we're basically going to have to largely withdraw our military from the Middle East and substantially from Europe as well, because that's the only way to to resource uh, and to substantiate that that commitment, that credibility in Asia. I mean, People who are saying we're going to continue to have a three theater military and operate around the world are, you know, they're not reckoning with the reality of how strong China is. It's as strong as we are, and we're pretending like it's not. So I actually think the decision to withdraw is actually strengthens our credibility. I call it in the book differentiated credibility, a kind of a more focused form. I mean, I use that, you know, credibility matters, right? If you want to get a mortgage, you got to get a credit report. But if you, you know, cheat at cards or golf, it doesn't mean that the bank isn't going to give you a, I mean, it might not be honorable, but it, 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 the bank may still give you a loan if you pay back your, that's what they care about. They're looking, they're going to look at your credit report, you know? So it's kind of a more focused form of, of credibility that we care about. And but it makes all the more important we stand by. That's what they're going to be looking at. If you're Japan, or you're the Philippines, you're an archipelago in the Western Pacific under the darkening shadow of Chinese military power. Well, you're going to look at what, you know, how we treat Taiwan, which is also an archipelago in the Western Pacific under the darkening shadow of Chinese military power. So, I mean, I think the, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was was catastrophically badly handled and the American people deserved a lot better and people need to be held accountable for that. But the basic decision was the right one and actually is only the beginning of what we need to do. Taiwan in particular, I mean, it, Taiwan is not a treaty ally, but people are deluding themselves if they don't think our credibility is attached to it, whether we like it or not. I tend to think of it as like two thirds of an alliance. I mean, we have a long history of public formal commitments, you know, the Taiwan Relations Act, the Six Assurances, uh, as well as a pattern of behavior that that the people who matter in this context, which are security decision makers in Asia, they all think that Taiwan is the canary in the coal mine. So, you know, the fact that it's not an ally is, is only part of the story. So um, I, I think that's, you know, my view is that the decision to defend Taiwan is not, is not cut and dry. It's not 100-0. It's more like 70-30. But if, if Taiwan were to fall to China, it would be very damaging to our position. And in fact, we would have to do even more dramatic things. So the best course of action is to be able to 
defend Taiwan alongside its own efforts, but to do so in a way that correlates the costs and risks of the effort with our interests in it. And that means really focusing all the more need to focus on it in, in a way that's, that I call denial defense. How much of our interest with respect to Taiwan is really on the economic side, though? I mean, if Taiwan Semi didn't exist, would we even care at this point? I think so. I, don't, I mean, I think the semiconductor thing is important, but the, the, the importance of Taiwan is one, that connection to our credibility, and also the island itself is, is significant militarily. It's at the center of what's called that first island chain, which is Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, basically. It's been our, the, the kind of core of our military position since the Second World War. If China were to subordinate Taiwan, it would have basically the ability to project military power into the Central Pacific. So we would be thinking again of Pacific, you know, Pacific War-like scenarios, and the, and the defense of Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines would become a lot harder. I mean, I think semiconductors would, the supply chains would, with difficulty, adapt. Um, but I don't think the semiconductor issue is central to the Taiwan scenario. But I mean, obviously, it's you know, people who are, who are working or, I mean, all of us wanting to buy a car or refrigerator or whatever. <laughs> I mean, the key point here is that it's not about the semiconductors, the ultimate decision, but it will have a big impact on that, on the semiconductor supply chain, whatever happens. Is there a mismatch now between the kind of strategy you're talking about and our actual power at the moment? Well, I wouldn't say, I think my strategy is matched to our actual power. I would say that our, that our like the strategy, the strategy that we're in practice pursuing right now is mismatched to our power. Now, you know, I, I, I worked a lot on the 2018 national defense strategy. So the formal strategy adopted in the last administration was very consistent with what I'm arguing. The reality though was different. I mean, that's why I made the point about implementation. I mean, there was a lot of resistance and foot dragging and so forth, and, and people not kind of fully buying in or, or, or internalizing it. I mean, hence our, our heavy presence in the Middle East and our continued heavy presence in Europe. Um, I mean, I think the, the, the reality is that, you know, I mean, again, I mean, by, by purchasing power parity metrics, I mean, by the, how much you can buy as an individual, China's already a larger economy than we are. And that tends to be what matters in the military context, because China's not buying weapon systems from us it's sourcing them internally or maybe from the Russians, right? So what matters is how far that yuan goes. And that yuan goes a lot farther than our dollar, especially given labor costs and all this kind of thing. So actually, I mean, we're, we're essentially matched with China. They spend less on defense, but they're, in, they're, they're increasing year on year. And, and if you think about that purchasing power parity, it's probably something closer to even. Um, and then yet we're acting as if we've got a multi-theater thing and, and, and the current administration, I mean, I think they're right to get out of Afghanistan, although they've handled it very badly, but they still have presence in, in other parts of the Gulf, for instance, and in Europe. Now, I think they may be trying to move that, but I mean, at this point, I actually think we're, we, we, we passed the point where we could do this transition gracefully. We basically blew it over the last 15 years or so. And now we are going to have to do things that seem kind of extreme if we're going to if we're going to get ahead of this problem, because I think that there's a possibility of a war happening in this decade. It's a very it's a very serious possibility. I, I couldn't put a number on. I think that number is going to vary over time. But the chief the, the chief determinant of that probability is going to be our efforts to build up our defense and Taiwan and Japan's efforts. Talk a little bit about the influence of multinationals in all of this, the, the Apples and the Nikes and the Starbucks of the world that have such strong presence in China at the moment. 
Well, I think in matters of war and peace, it's going to be pretty limited. I mean, those are ultimately, they're obviously headquartered in the United States, so they're going to be subject to, to U.S. law. And I think if people are dying, those companies are going to be, you know, they're not going to be able to, um, they're going to have to kind of adapt. Um, I, I think where the, the, the influence of the multinationals is particularly relevant is to get back to your economic question. So when, you know, for instance, the White House coordinator for Asia, Kurt Campbell, is, you know, very serious expert and done, done a lot of good over the years. But one thing he said that I disagreed with was um, he said if Taiwan, you know, if China invaded Taiwan, they'd blow up their international economic position. I just think that's wrong. I mean, and, and the reason why is that those companies that you just mentioned, as well as the big Wall Street investors and so forth, are going to call up the White House and say, you know, we need an economic relationship with China. We've got huge investments here. Now, if people are fighting and dying, American soldiers are fighting and dying. That's going to be one thing. But if we're just in a kind of an economic sanctions, counter sanctions approach, I, I don't think that's going to work. Uh, and, and, and that's one of the reasons is the influence of those multinational corporations, especially because also third parties, the Europeans are not going to want to go along with something like that either. I mean, I guess the other part of the question is the influence of those corporations in the American political establishment and how it shapes policy and strategy. Right. And I mean, I think actually the point I would make is um, that, you know, one of the things, you know, and people have different views, but let's say you have problems with the social media companies, whether from the right or the left in the contemporary context, everybody in the American debate is now presuming something very important, which is that American voters have the power to change that future, right? That, 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 you know, depending on your, on your perspective, you could elect a constellation in one way or the other that would change regulation of the social media companies and that that would matter. If China dominates the Asian market, that won't matter because those companies will either fade in importance relative to Chinese companies or they'll be um, uh, uh, acquired by Chinese companies or Chinese subsidiaries or what have you. And then the future will not be determined in Washington or Sacramento or Austin or where have you. It's going to be determined in, in Beijing. Or, or, or wherever those, you know, they make those decisions in, in, in China. And I think that's a really important point that, that people don't kind of register, that, that we're so accustomed to being masters of our own fate. And that's an issue right now. And finally, talk a little bit about this, this idea of, of this defensive kind of hegemonic, anti-hegemonic coalition, and whether or not these other Asian nations that you talk about can be counted on to want to be part of that coalition as opposed to cutting their own deals with China? Well, that's the dynamic that, that we face. I mean, they, I, don't say that, I don't think they can be counted on. I think countries like Japan and India and Australia are likely to be strong and stand up for their autonomy, although who knows? And I think those decisions are going to be based on the cost benefit that they perceive. Um, and so that's why our role is so important. It's not that we're doing a favor for Japan. It's that our interests are aligned. Neither of us wants to be dominated by China, but if the Japanese feel that at the end of the day, let alone the South Koreans or the Philippines or the Vietnam, if those countries feel that they're, if they stand up, they're only going to suffer, they're going to be very likely to cut a deal. That's just, that's just rational. And so it's critical now that we step forward and we demonstrate uh, that we're going to stick there and be with, you know, be with them. And that we are going to kind of be prepared to take a confrontational approach with, with China. Because what these countries really fear is that we will, at the end of the day, do something like what's called a G2, which is to basically, you know, make a deal with China 
and not be prepared to stand up when the chips are down. Because the thing for us is we can say all we want. We can flap our gums. But at the end of the day, if push comes to shove and it turns out we're bluffing, the ones left holding the bag will be the countries that live there. We can always come home in America and we'll, we'll be, it'll be a lot worse, but it, you know, we'll, we'll survive as an independent entity. That's not necessarily true for countries in the region. You know, so their, 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 their cost benefit is really important. And this is one of, the, one, of the, one of the reasons to really focus on the region right now. Elbridge Colby, the book is The Strategy of Denial. American defense in an age of great power conflict. Elbridge, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.